we're, we are between series right now. Um, next week, we start a series uh, in John chapter 1 through 5 called Experiencing the Heart of the Father Through the Life of Jesus. Actually, the title is The Word Made Flesh. Subtitle is Experiencing the Heart of the Father Through the Life of His Son, Jesus. So that's next week. We start this week, though, we're kind of in a, a little mini-series, and Josh did a great job last week talking about the role of the Holy Spirit, who He is, what He does, why it's important for us to sustain a warm, enriching relationship with Him. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to apply that to the spiritual discipline of healing prayer, especially healing prayer in a small group context. So let me start off with a little bit of story about, about grace and about, about, about me. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, we had an unusually high number of people who would come to the elders, come to our staff, and they would request prayer for healing. A lot of it back then was cancer. And this was really difficult because we would pray for healing, and it felt like we didn't really know what we were doing. We were praying, and uh, the people appreciated the prayers, but it didn't feel, it felt like there was something more that we should have been doing that we were not doing. About the same time, we were working extensively down in Cuba, and down in Cuba, we were hearing stories of people who were in dire straits physically, and they were coming to our partner churches down in Cuba, and they were receiving healing prayer, and they were reporting some pretty dramatic answers to the prayers. So we, we took both of those experiences, our bit of frustration and our Cuban partner's sense of victory, brought those together, and the elders of Grace Community Church said, we need to evaluate this. What is it that God is calling us to do in the area of healing prayer? How should we weave this into our church? So being the avid reader and researcher, I immerse myself in all of the best books that I could find. And by God's grace, I'm, I'm a fast reader. I, I am able to read pretty voraciously. And I would read these books and I would give the best ones to the elders. We were making good progress when I discovered this book by Craig Keener, uh, Miracles, The Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. This book, I will tell you, changed my life in a, in a big way about, about seven or eight years ago. It's a very hard book to read. It's two volumes. It's over 1,000 pages, and it has 10,000 footnotes. I got so excited about it, I bought copies for all of the elders who said, a thousand pages, seriously, you want us to read this book? But here's the life-changing aspect of the book. More than half the book are accounts of miracle stories, especially stories of healing prayer that are taking place today, right now, in this generation, in the global south. We're talking Africa, South America, China, Asia, India, and, and, and so on. Whenever he would have a footnote, I would go to the footnote and say, is this legit? Is this real? How, how is he getting this information? Where is he getting this information from? I began to correspond with Craig Keener and ask him questions about what he was doing. The book was riveting to me. It was life to me. I loved it. 
Fast forward a year, and I'm down in Cuba. Well, it's about this time. I don't, know, I don't know exactly if it was a year. I'm down in Cuba. I had this incredibly powerful experience myself with the Holy Spirit in the most impoverished church I'd ever been in. And I saw the joy, I saw the spiritual wealth and vitality of these believers. And I, I just had a profound experience with the Lord in this particular church. So armed with that experience, I went back to the book by Craig Keener, and I, I noticed something at the very end. Here's what Keener says. Those churches who have seen dramatic results in healing prayer see, and here's the important phrase, healing prayer as a discipline, as a spiritual discipline as something you do on a regular basis as a normal part of your faith in Christ. And we entered into that discipline about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. A little awkwardly at first, a little hesitantly at first, and then a lot more boldly. And we now have got a really neat, expanding portfolio of testimonies of people whose lives have been dramatically changed through healing prayer. And you've heard two stories the last two Sundays as we've, I've interviewed people. So let me just take a look at this discipline. I'll tell you, this other book by Eric Metaxas was also life-changing for me. Very, very great book. So here's, uh, here's James 5. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. So what I want to do this morning is give you a biblical model and a practical model for healing prayer that we are currently using at Grace, and that I would love to see expand maybe more robustly into our small groups. So the first question is, what's the biblical basis for healing prayer? We'll start off with that one verse. Is anyone among you sick? The assumption James makes is obvious. Followers of Jesus Christ are going to encounter sickness, and illness. And you have to remember the time in which he was writing this book. It's the ancient world where sickness, illness, infection, dismemberment, burns were happening all the time because it was the ancient world. Historian Rodney Stark writes very graphically about um, what it was like living in a city in the ancient world. Think about this for a second. Um, is there any way to flush sewage out of your home? No. So most people, for instance, in the city of Rome would, would pack 15 people to a room, no bathrooms, and they would have chamber pots that they, ha they would have to empty out. And where would they empty them out? They would be out in the street. Unless they were lazy, and they would throw them out of the window. And there are stories of people in the ancient world throwing their chamber pot contents out of the window, and people being walking to work and going... Oh my gosh, it's coming, to, coming down on me. The ancient world was a place of sickness 
illness, infection, and disease. So when James writes this, he's writing into an ancient world that was well acquainted with sickness and pains. No one in the ancient world would ever have embraced a health and wellness gospel. Sickness was was too prevalent. It was too prominent. But here's where the Christian faith was radically different than the other faiths. It was founded on Jesus' example of care for the sick and the suffering. People in the ancient world knew they could not predict when, where, how, and why God might heal somebody. So what they would do is they would follow Jesus' example of pastoral care and prayer. Let me me amend that to say sometimes it was practical nursing care and prayer. And what happened? People got better. Was it the nursing care? Maybe. Was it the prayer? Maybe. Was it a combination of the two? Maybe. Was there a formula to it? No. But following Jesus' example, people would engage in basic essential nursing care and prayer and Many times people experienced astonishing, dramatic answers to the prayer. The bottom line is this. In the early church, people brought the reality of their sickness and suffering into fellowship with the risen Christ. They prayed, and they depended upon God for healing, improvement, and relief. Well, what about us in the 20th century? Where are we in the 20th century? Today, people are very polarized on this issue. On the one hand, you have health and wealth preaching that says God never wants you to be sick, and if you are, something's wrong with you because God God does not want that. On the other hand, there are people who say, oh, God does not do any of that stuff these days. Don't pray over it. Don't rely on God for it because God's not going to do that. That time is past, and many people are divided, sharply divided over that point. However, in the last 20 years, because of the widely, because of the availability of the internet, many, many stories are coming from the global south, from the majority world, from the developing world, where people with zero access to healthcare are reporting dramatic results toward healing prayer. This is so prevalent that secular medical schools in the United States are studying this, like Duke University Medical School, where Harold Koenig, who is the chairman of the Department of Religion, Spirituality, and Wellness, writes on this subject, and he is a very warmly committed follower of Jesus. Science journals, medical journals, are reporting these claims in peer-reviewed articles, like the article by Candy Brown, talking about proximal intercessory prayer and the amazing results that they've seen in Mozambique with intercessory prayer. Between uh, between, uh, 1990 and 2002, the Center for Disease Control noted a dramatic increase in the use of prayer for therapeutic intervention rising from the least common form of complementary medicine to the most. And here's a summation of this journal article saying, is healing prayer the prevailing form of primary care medicine? That was argued by Jeff Jeff Levin at uh, Baylor University. Prayer may be one of the most widely used 
forms of treatments even among Americans. So back to James's command. James's command is this. When we're sick, we are commanded to pray and we're commanded to pray in the context of a small group. Let them call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. As in many forms of leadership in the past in local churches, lots of different forms. But in the early church, in the early church, the basic form was there was a house church and there were a group of mature believers who had oversight over the house church. There was a small group and the elders were part of that small group. And the idea was, are you sick? All right, come to the small group, come to the small house church, come to the elders, and the elders are going to pray over you and, and, and ask for God to do a healing. Now, why was it important that the elders were involved in this? The reason why it's important is because God, I think, wanted the elders to see those dramatic answers to prayer. God does not want elders who are anti-supernaturalists. He does not want elders who are like functional deists or atheists. He wants elders to be robustly believing in the supernatural intervention of God. The elders needed to see how God would answer, answer prayers. But James goes on to say that what the elders are to do is what the whole church is to do. Because he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Yes, the elders are involved in this command, but also everybody else in, the small, in, the, in the, this house church would have been involved in the command as well. So the elders do it, yes. The rest of the church does it as well with the expectation that God is going to intervene and bring some sort of improvement, some sort of healing, some sort of dramatic answer to that prayer. Now, when you listen to this, there are some objections that I know come up because I've heard these objections. One objection was this, wait, is it really right for me to pray for somebody's healing? Does God still do these things or has this passed away? I know a lot of people feel that way when they're asked to pray for someone's healing. I'm not sure God does this anymore. Should I be doing this? Here's a second objection. If I pray for healing and God doesn't do anything, what does that mean? Does that mean I screwed up in my, my prayers? Does that mean that this person is somehow sinning and blocking those prayers? In other words, how do I interpret what appears to be a non-healing? That's a thorny question that a lot of people ask. A third question that I think is, is inside people's minds that they struggle with is, if I start doing this, am I going to appear like one of those crazy televangelists on TV that looks kind of different and kind of weird? And because people fear these three objections, and there's more, they say, okay, I know this is a command to elders, to the church. I don't know how to do it, so I'm not going to do it. And that's a sad thing. 
because this is a discipline that brings incredible blessings. So how do we apply this command? Let's go back to the command given to the elders. And, uh, and the command is as follows. Let him, that is them, that is the elders, or I would say a small group, pray over that person who is sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Notice the guidelines. Guideline number one is there is the anointing with oil. Why would you do this? Why would you do this? Because the, the habit in the Bible is that we do things with our body that mirror what's in our soul. And oil was always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So when you are pouring or, or putting, placing oil on someone's forehead and praying over, over them, it's a reminder like, oh yeah, we need to remember the Spirit is here. The Spirit is our comforter. The Spirit is our source of power. And we can welcome the Spirit's presence and welcome the Spirit's power as we pray healing prayers over this person before us. That's a very important component. Josh talked last week about the Holy Spirit being sort of the forgotten member of the Trinity. You know, we have this forgotten member that we, oh yeah, we need to welcome his already presence among us and invite his power. And so the anointing of oil was a physical reminder to remember that the Spirit is here. It was also a practical reminder to touch the person receiving prayer. Remember that one time that Jesus had this guy who was born blind and he spit on the ground and he made a mud pie and he put the mud pie over the guy's, the guy's eyes. And you think, why would you do that? Why, why, would you, why would you do that? Well, one of the reasons why Jesus did that is because this man now was being touched by the Son of God in the area of his physical handicap. I would argue you can't really apply mud to a guy's eyes unless Jesus would have put his hand behind his neck and gently placed the mud there. And Jesus, in doing that, is modeling to this man the love of Christ. So the anointing of it with oil was a, a spiritual reminder, but it was also a practical reminder. Lay hands on the person. Let them know that you are mediating the love of of God. After the anointing with oil comes the prayer. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. That sounds automatic, doesn't it? Sounds like, okay, I, I pray, bam, healing comes. That's not the way this is written. Uh, one of the things that many uh, commentators in the book of James say, I think they're right, is that James is written in the same genre, the same literary style as the book of Proverbs. When Proverbs says, train up a child in the way that he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's easy to take that as a, a guarantee. I do this automatically. My child will, will do this. It's a, it's a promise, a guarantee. It's not the way it's written. Proverbs are written with general principles that are designed to be habits of life. And those general principles yield expected results. That's the exact same way that this proverb is written, uh, this uh, statement is written in James. 
I enter into the discipline of healing prayer, and as I enter into that discipline, as time goes on, I see God answer those prayers in a way that brings me joy and confidence in the power of God. Now, you can look back at that and say, well, wait, Brad, that didn't say that. That says there's a promise. And I'm saying it's not written like a promise. It's written like a proverb. And James is inviting us into a regular discipline. And as we do that discipline, we will begin to see more and more results in the way that we um, encounter God's, God's, uh, God's answers. Aren't you glad he doesn't give us a formula? Because, you know, if God gave us a formula, what would we trust in? The formula. And we would not trust in the Lord. We would trust in the formula. So this is not an airtight formula. What he's, what he's giving us is a general pattern for our, our, our faith in Christ. When I'm sick, I need to call somebody in the body of Christ and, I, and I, need to, I need to get prayed over, believing that God can heal me, and I leave the results up to Him. I can't control when, where, how, and why something happens. But always, always, I need to make my first foray into the solution, prayer. And apparently, according to what Jeff Levin says, what I just read, Americans are doing that more and more. It is the primary go-to place for complementary medicine, prayer. Now, let me add one thing, because we live in the 21st century. I would say we always do this in conjunction with outstanding medicine. We always do this. There's never a dichotomy. There was not a dichotomy in the Apostle Paul. I would remind you that the Apostle Paul traveled with a physician, Luke. And when the Apostle Paul was, was struggling, he had his physician there. Now, Luke was not trained in a modern academic medical setting, obviously. But the Paul who healed people and who taught about healing also traveled with his personal physician through some very difficult situations. So I would remind you that this is not in, as an alternative to medicine. This is, this is together with the best that medicine can provide. Let me make an additional clarification about, about healing. What does it mean to be, to be healed? Several years ago, I met with a well-known theologian who did not practice healing prayer, didn't believe in it. He said, sure, theoretically, God can heal, but if somebody really has the healing gift, they have the ability to enter into a hospital and with 100% effectiveness, clear everybody out. Well, that was never the belief of the early church. It was never the practice of the Apostle Paul. It was, it, there were occasions when massive people were automatically healed. Peter did that for instance, in the early part of Acts. But that was never the common practice of the church. It's certainly not, not, not what's happening, uh, happening today. Um, so what is happening, um, what you do see happening in the scriptures is something like Mark 8, 24, where Peter touched the man who was blind 
And the man says, I, I can see, but not very clearly, I see, see people like, like trees walking about. Jesus touches him again, and the guy, the guy is fully healed. He needed a second touch. I, I'm telling you, this is not an airtight formula for how to practice healing prayer and get the exact same result every time. It's not. It's a spiritual discipline that we enter into in, in faith. Moreover, many people, especially in Craig Keener's book, report that healing prayer sometimes brings 80% improvement. Sometimes it brings 50% improvement and then another 20%, another 20% after repeated times in prayer. Even the healing is sometimes not 100%. Lazarus rose from the dead, but Lazarus did die, as we all do. So this is not an airtight formula that happens every time. It's a spiritual discipline you enter into, and in that spiritual discipline, you include the best of modern medicine, you include prayer, you may include repeated times of healing prayer, always with the expectation that God can enter into my sickness and pain and bring fresh results. That's the biblical part. Let's look at the practical part. What's the best way to practice this in the year 2017? I want to give you a six-step process, but it's not like these are formulaic in, in any way, shape, or form. And I want to give you a little, little bit of background, additional little background on me. Look, I, I love doing research. I love reading. And when I find an author I like, I call him up on the phone and I, and I ask him, what's really going on here? So I was in Oxford University about 10 years ago and I met uh, an endoscopic neuro, a neurosurgeon, a guy who does neurosurgery by putting up uh, a thing through the leg and taking it up into your brain. And he said, it is stressful. And he said, what I started doing is I started practicing the discipline of healing prayer in the operating room. And he said, if there was ever a time where I did not start in prayer, my team, some of whom are not followers of Jesus, my team would say, Doc, uh, we better pray, right? Yeah, we better pray. This doctor practices the best of modern medicine. And he has radically depended upon God in prayer as he does what he does with a lot of, a lot of skill, a lot of skill. And he said, in the process, I have seen some pretty astonishing answers to prayer as I practice both healing prayer and modern medicine. I've corresponded with, with others, Harold Koenig at Duke University, who uh, has written extensively on this. Um, and it's fun to hear about how these physicians are practicing healing prayer in the context of their medical practices. At the same time, I've been contacting various different pastors who do the same thing. And six sorts of patterns show up. I want to give you the six right now. Pattern number one is if you're going to engage in healing prayer, prepare the physical space. Set an appointment. Prepare the physical space. You want a place where that person comes and they realize I am being lavished with love in the context of this healing prayer session. I would say put the lights low, 
Maybe you light some candles. If the person is allergic to the candles, maybe you diffuse some essential oils or whatever to make this an atmosphere that's warm, that's inviting, that's calm. Prepare the space. And then step two is gather the information. I think this is incredibly important as you're beginning to to pray for somebody. You know, Jesus in Matthew 20, 32 asked the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? You might think, why did he have to do that? He's God. The guy, Jesus can read the guy's mind. Uh, plus, it was obvious, he's blind. <laughs> he needs a healing. So why would Jesus ask that question? Jesus wanted the man to express his need. He wanted a conversation with the man so that the man brought his problem into fellowship with Jesus. So good, good questions, I think, are important when somebody is gathered in a small group for healing prayer. What are your symptoms? What hurts? How long has this been going on? Have you seen a doctor? What did your doctor say? Is there a diagnosis? Is there an upcoming medical procedure? Ask about how God has already been leading that person to pray. I want to find out, how has God been leading you to pray? Uh, I've, I've had people um, who have told me in their hospital room, Pastor, God has said to me, these are my last days. I am preparing now to meet the Lord. That's how I'm praying. I've had other people who were just as sick, and they have said, Rod, I'm praying that God would heal me. Will you join me in that prayer? So I want to know how God is already leading a person as I'm, as I'm praying over them. Ask about their emotional state relative to the sickness. How's your heart? Not your physical heart. How's your emotional heart? How's your anxiety? Um, how's, your, how's your fear? Maybe God is leading us to pray that the peace of, that passes understanding would descend on this person. Ask, is there anything else happening in your life as you've experienced this sickness? That's an open-ended question, way open-ended. And sometimes I have heard things like, yeah, yeah, because of this sickness, I feel as if my spouse is pulled away from me. I need prayer for that too. Because of this sickness, I, I kind of feel as if, as if, Now I'm sort of handicapped and my friends don't know what to say to me. I need prayer for that too. So it's really important that you ask questions so that the the person who's being prayed for knows that you know the depths of their heart. That means you've got to create a really very calm and and inviting environment. Step three then, I would say... um, you begin to have a time of praise and worship. Now, why, why would that be so important? Here's the reason why. Psalm 73 is a wonderful psalm. And in Psalm 73, the psalmist is emotionally devastated. So devastated, he's thinking about maybe pulling away from his faith in God. And then he moves into a corporate worship setting And in that corporate worship setting, God changes his heart, God shifts his emotions, and God now sees things, I mean, the the psalmist now sees things from God's perspective, and now he sees that God is in control. 
that God is good and big and powerful and capable of entering into his situation. So you, you want a time of praise and worship. You also want a time where you welcome the Holy Spirit's presence. That is so important. You know, John 14, 16, I will give you another counselor. It means comforter. It means, Greek word is paraclete, somebody who comes alongside. I will give you another comforter who will be with you forever, the spirit of truth, for you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So if you have the Holy Spirit in the person receiving prayer and in the people giving prayer, what you want to do is create a time of worship where you are literally hosting the Spirit of God, hosting the presence of God. The Spirit's already there. It's not right to say, Holy Spirit, be here. He's already here. Your role is to host His already present presence, if that's a word, that's a phrase. You want 